Welcome to the East Memorial Student Podcast, your source for the biblical teaching of East Memorial Student Ministries. I'm your host, Matthew Ronsky, pastor of Students and Discipleship at East Memorial Baptist Church in Prattville, Alabama. Well, it is good to be back with everybody. And as many of you already know, tonight we are officially beginning our new series on the letter to Philemon. And uh, I do want to say I really, I really did enjoy teaching through the biblical ethics series and all the group discussions that went along with that. Um, it, was, it was a lot of fun. But it's also good to be able to study a book of the Bible verse by verse. So I'm excited about, about this study as well. It should only last maybe a month at most. Um, and so we're going to jump in tonight. Now, one of the most important things, and it's just a, a Bible study tip, is before you start studying a book of the Bible verse by verse, let's say you're doing your own study or a study for something more formal, it is important, and you could say even crucial, to first examine the overall message in the context of the book. If you think of it like driving a car, right, you first, you want to know where you're going. You want to know if you have gas in the car, if your car works, the conditions of the road. You would like to know all those things before you start driving, right? Well, in biblical studies, it's the same thing. Before you start diving into the text of Scripture, it is important to know the conditions of the road and the conditions of the car, so to speak. So tonight, we're going to begin this series with an introduction to Philemon, followed by a uh, a survey of an important theme within Philemon, and then we'll round out this evening with a look at the first three verses in the letter, which is the greeting of the letter. So some background to Philemon. Well, what we can gather from this letter, other New Testament letters, and even some ancient sources from the early church, what we, what we know is that this letter was written by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison. And it is possible that Paul wrote this letter when he was imprisoned in Rome during his first Roman imprisonment, and that was in the early 60s AD, so about 30 or so years after the death of Christ. And he wrote several letters uh, while in prison, but this is one of them. And as we will see in the greeting to this letter, it is clear that this letter was written to a faithful Christian man named Philemon. He's the first one addressed, and and he is the main one addressed in this, in this letter. And what we know about Philemon is that he most likely lived in, in Colossae, which is the place where the letter to the Colossians was written to. And he was part of the church there. Also, what we could know is that since other people are addressed in this letter, and we'll cover that tonight, including the church that Philemon was a part of, we can say that this letter was meant to be read to the whole church. It wasn't just a private letter to Philemon. And then also what we could say is that since this letter was preserved as Scripture, we have it in our Bibles today, from the time that it was written, we can say that the contents of this letter are ultimately God's Word. Really, Paul is just a vessel that God is communicating through to Philemon. But this is Scripture. This is inspired Scripture from God, and therefore it is applicable to the whole church and is to be read by the whole church. Now, getting into the contents of this letter, the subject of this letter that we will see is that there, really this is addressed to Philemon, faithful Christian man, 
about his relationship with one of his slaves named Onesimus. And evidently, there was a fracture in the relationship between Philemon and his slave. And Onesimus, the slave, ran away either to seek his freedom or to seek the help of Paul to mediate between him and and Philemon, um, or probably both. He probably was both seeking his freedom and then also seeking Paul's help with with the, the relationship. Now, the subject, this subject to a Christian man about one of his slaves running away, leads to several challenging questions, one of which is, why did a faithful Christian own a slave? It's one question that might come up. Two, why does Paul end up sending Onesimus back to Philemon, which he actually does? And then three, we could, we could ask, well, what does God, speaking through Paul, want Philemon to do with Onesimus? What does he want to do? What does he want him to do? And how does the message of this letter apply to Christians today, like us? Well, in the next few weeks, these questions should be answered. But perhaps it would be helpful to explore the topic of slavery in more depth to even provide more context to this letter. So for a good chunk of time, we're going to go through slavery in the Bible and then also in the ancient world, the Roman world, during the time that this letter was written. And we'll start with the biblical context and framework. What what does the Bible have to say about slavery? And really the first thing we could say, just off the top, is that slavery is, as a whole, condemned by Scripture. And let me give you some examples with Scriptures that prove this. So first example, if you're taking notes, is that kidnapping and selling somebody into slavery is a capital offense in God's law. For example, this is from Deuteronomy 24, verse 7, but there's also a passage in Exodus, I believe, that speaks to this. But here in Deuteronomy 24, verse 7, it says, If a man is caught kidnapping any of his countrymen of the sons of Israel, and he deals with him violently or sells him, then that thief shall die, and you shall purge the evil from among you. So what this means is that Joseph's brothers, right, Joseph from from the book of Genesis, his brothers who sold him into slavery, they technically committed a sin that was worthy of the death penalty. This also means that many people behind the Atlantic slave trade in, in the history of the Americas, and I don't have to spend much time talking about how slavery in that context, and even how slavery is understood in America today because of the the Atlantic slave trade, I don't have to spend much time convincing you about how awful and horrible that that slave practice was. But one thing that this verse tells us is that many people behind the Atlantic slave trade would have also, if under God's law, been guilty and subject to the death penalty. So that's, that's one point. Number two, there's the obvious example that when Israel was enslaved and mistreated in Egypt, God heard their cries and in his own timing ended up freeing them. Number three, there is something called indentured servitude. And this is where a poor person, basically, they, they can't feed themselves, they can't you know, buy a house or rent a house, so they will literally sell themselves, and this happened in the ancient world, they would sell themselves to a person 
in order to be provided for with food, shelter, and clothing. And then the agreement, of course, would be that that person would then become a servant of the person that they sold themselves to. This is called indentured servitude. And technically, this form of slavery was allowed and permitted in Scripture, with some exceptions. And that is this, that God's people were expected to handle this situation different than from the rest of the world. A good example of this is in the book of Leviticus. And you don't have to turn there. These scriptures will be up on the screen because we'll be going through several of these passages. But Leviticus chapter 25, verse 39 to 43. Chapter 25, 39 to 43. It reads, If a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to you that he sells himself to you, you shall not subject him to a slave service. He shall be with you as a hired man, as if he were a sojourner. He shall, receive, he shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. He shall then go out from you, he and his sons with him, and shall go back to his family that he may return to the property of his forefathers. For they are my servants whom I bought, brought out from the land of Egypt. They are not to be sold in a slave sale. You shall not rule over him with severity, but are to revere your God. So a few points that we can make from this passage. When it came to fellow countrymen, fellow Israelites, Israel was expected to treat any indentured servant from among their people as employees instead of pieces of property, as a hired man. And also... What we see here is that every seventh year, and this was called the year of Jubilee, every seventh year, the indentured servants were to be set free. They were to be set free regardless of how, many, how much money they owed, what they agreed to. Every seventh year, the year of Jubilee, they were to be set free. With one exception, and that is if an indentured servant said, I want to remain with my master permanently, and become part of his family as a family member, then he could go through a ceremony to basically, basically like an adoption ceremony to become a permanent part of the family. Otherwise, he was to be set free according to the law of God. Another uh, point of distinction is this in, in Scripture, that if an Israelite killed a slave, then the slave's blood would, to be, would have to be avenged, meaning that the master who killed the slave would have to be killed himself. He would have to suffer the death penalty. And if an Israelite permanently injured his slave through an assault, talks about either, we'll, we'll read it, but if, if he were to do that and cause a permanent injury, then the slave was supposed to go free. That earned the slave his freedom. So there's two passages we'll look at in the same chapter, Exodus 21. Exodus 21, verse 20, it reads, If a man strikes his male or female slave with the rod, and he dies at his hand, he shall be punished. And the idea there is that he shall be punished with the death penalty for the blood of his male or female slave. And then looking down in verse 26 and 27, If a man strikes the eye of his male or female slave and destroys it, he shall let him go free on account of his eye. If he knocks out a tooth of his male or female slave, he shall let him go free on account of his tooth. So if he kills them, there's a punishment. If there's any 
permanent injury, even knocking out a tooth, then that slave were to go free. And then, finally, in, in our Old Testament examples, another point is that Israel was expected to harbor and protect runaway slaves. And this will be important even for Philemon as we consider, consider what Paul says, but Israel was expected to harbor and protect runaway slaves. An example of this is in Deuteronomy 23, verses 15 to 16. Deuteronomy 23, verse 15 to 16, and it says, You shall not hand over to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall live with you in your midst, in the place which he shall choose in one of your towns where it pleases him. You shall not mistreat him. So what is clear from all these examples and all these points is that Scripture is diametrically opposed to the slavery that we saw in America's history in the 1800s and earlier. It is diametrically opposed to that form of slavery in many regards, but we do have to say this and and qualify this. While the Bible does condemn those wicked forms of slavery— the Bible does not focus on the abolishment of slavery in general. And what do I mean by that? Well, when you look to the New Testament, we'll read through two passages to, to demonstrate this, the first being in Ephesians 6, and we'll read verses 5 to 9. So Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 9. And this is Paul writing to the Ephesians, well, God through Paul, it says, "'Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh.'" with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. And then the second passage we'll read is in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 20 to 23. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 20 to 23, and it reads, Each man must remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? And this is talking about called to salvation. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you, are, if you are able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So now there's many things that we could say about these passages. But what we could maybe summarize or the the summary we could give to these passages is that clearly these passages do not endorse or promote slavery. We see that. It also does not speak very highly of slavery, nor do they justify the type of slavery that we saw in America. But they also don't seek to abolish slavery in its entirety, and we also see that. The emphasis seems to be that all Christians are ultimately slaves of Christ and that 
we are purchased by His blood. That's the price we were purchased by. And therefore, our lives on earth should reflect that reality. Reflecting the reality of being slaves of Christ is more important than our earthly position in this life. It transcends, it goes above whether or not you are a slave, a rich man, doesn't matter. At the end of the day, we're all, if we're Christians, we're all slaves of Christ purchased by him in his blood. So, we went through a lot of passages, a lot of points. This gives us a pretty good overview of Scripture's teaching on slavery. And many of these passages will be very relevant to our study in Philemon's, and I'm sure we'll probably revisit some of them. However, before we finally jump into the letter of Philemon, we do need to address the practice of slavery in the Roman world where during the time that Philemon was written. This is the final piece to bringing together the context of this letter. So let's talk about slavery in ancient Rome. And, of course, there's entire books that are written on this topic, so, I mean, we could, we could say a lot. But let me just say this. To be short, slavery in Rome did not always look like the slavery practiced in the Americas. Uh, like in the times of the Old Testament, indentured servitude was very common. It was common in, in ancient Rome like it was in ancient Israel. And uh, a huge percentage of the population were slaves in ancient Rome. It was a, a huge part of their economy. For example, uh, some scholars estimate that in Colossae, where, where Philemon is living during this time, it is estimated that up to one-third of the population were slaves. One-third. So that's a lot of people that were in this, this class of, of slavery. And what we can also say is that among these slaves, some were of low class, you know, low-class slaves, so to speak, unskilled. Um, but some were also very highly educated and highly skilled. So there are slaves that served as scribes, for courts and uh, royal courts, legal courts. There are slaves that served as accountants and, and really business people in the estates and in the households of their, of their masters or uh, as part of a, a public institution. Uh, many slaves were also educators, so it could have been very possible that some of your uh, musical trainers, um, some of even your, your rhetoric or mathematic trainers and educators would have been slaves. And, uh, and for slaves in this category, these high-skilled, high, highly educated slaves, uh, their life would have been a lot better than the unskilled and lower-class slaves that might have been working in the mines or, unfortunately, even in the, the brothels. Um, there were slaves in those contexts as well. The highly educated, highly skilled slaves would have enjoyed a relative amount of freedom. They would have been able to travel to and fro. They would have been entrusted with a lot if you actually, now that I just think about it, Joseph uh, from, from the Gen book of Genesis, he was technically a slave of the house of Potiphar and then became a slave of Pharaoh, but was so trusted and so blessed that he rose to the second highest ranking position in Egypt, but started out as a slave, a highly skilled slave in that context. And you know, like I said, some of the others, and it's very true in Rome as well, that there were slaves that were treated as bad as any slave in human history, including the slavery in America. So that is true, too. Really, it depended on your, who your master was and what skills 
you had. Uh, also, a final point that's important to mention is that Roman slavery had nothing to do with race like it did in the Americas. Okay? People from all racial and ethnic and national backgrounds were slaves in the Roman Empire. There was no discrimination in that sense. A bunch of different people of all sorts uh, served as slaves in ancient Roman society. Now, we're getting ready to jump into Philemon, but let me maybe say one more thing, and that is this, that, okay, despite these differences that we've gone through between Roman slavery and then American slavery in the 1800s and earlier, there is one overlapping truth and, and something that both types of slavery shared, and that is this, that ultimately a slave was still under the complete control and ownership of their master. Even in ancient Rome, in America, that, that was true in both contexts. A slave was not their own. They did not have control over their own life. So, with all this background information in mind, okay, and that's a lot of information, let us now turn to the book of Philemon and look at the first three verses, which is the greeting to this letter. So turning to the letter to Philemon, and we'll begin in verse 1. And here, Paul, under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit, says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker. And we'll stop right here. So the first thing that you'll want to note as we come to greetings and introductions like this, is this. And this is another Bible study pro tip. Every word matters in Scripture. What is said and what is not said can be equally important. And that is no different even for things like these greetings where we might think, oh, this is just some extra information. You know, let's just kind of skip through this. Every word matters. There's a reason why certain phrases, titles, and words are chosen over others. And when it comes to these letters, especially the letters that Paul writes, it can be very helpful to look at the titles that Paul uses to refer to himself. These titles can tell us a lot about what Paul is intending to communicate, what the big focus or emphasis of what Paul is about to communicate. The, the titles and the introductions and the greetings in these letters can tell us a lot. So when it comes to these introductions and these titles that Paul uses, I'm going to go through every letter that you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it to you. Every title that Paul uses in every letter that he writes. And we'll start in, in biblical order, which does end in Philemon. Philemon is the last of Paul's writing in, in the, the order of the New Testament that we have today. So in the book of Romans, the letter to Romans, Paul refers to himself as a bondservant or a slave of Christ, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel. And you compare that to the others, you see that there's an emphasis on the gospel. And sure enough, Romans has a huge emphasis on the gospel that Paul preached. Going to 1 and 2 Corinthians, 
He says, called, referring to himself, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So in both those letters, it says, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And this indicates that his apostleship is going to be important in these, in these two letters. Galatians, he refers to himself as an apostle, but then he qualifies, he says this, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So in other words, yes, the focus is going to be on, well, part of it on the apostleship of Paul, but specifically the fact that Paul did not get his apostleship from men or the authority of men, that Paul is under the direct authority of Christ. And that, sure enough, is a theme that shows up in the letter to Galatians. Go to Ephesians. It says, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That's it. Nothing uh, terribly unique about that. Seems, that seems to be a more standard um, introduction. In Philippians, he says, referring to himself and and I believe Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus or slaves of Christ Jesus, nothing more. Colossians says, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, same as Ephesians. First and second Thessalonians has no title, no title, which is interesting. It might have to play into the fact that Paul in that letter uh, appeals to more of equality between him and the Thessalonian believers. And so no title kind of makes sense in that context. First Timothy, the title is An Apostle of Christ Jesus According to the Commandment of God Our Savior and of Christ Jesus who is our hope. And so there we have this idea of the apostleship, the ministry of Paul's in focus, but it's a, a, the focus is on Paul's obligation to serve in that ministry, the obligation before God. And as you see in 1 Timothy, Paul holds Timothy to a similar obligation, that he has, he's obligated to fulfill the calling that has been given to him. And then 2 Timothy, a little bit different, says an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. So that gives us an indication that there's going to be maybe more of a message of hope that's motivating a promise, that's mo motivating the contents of that letter. Then Titus says, a bondservant or a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. So in other words, Paul is going to focus on a minister's obligations to the people of the church and their role in benefiting the church. And then we get to Philemon, and it just says, he just refers to himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He doesn't say slave or bondservant. He doesn't say apostle. He just says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And so then the question we ask is, okay, why is Paul, and this is unique, this is the only time that Paul, in all of his introductions, refers to himself as a prisoner, the only time. And so we can then ask, why? Why did Paul want to refer to himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus in this introduction? Well, we could say this, that with this unique title, that considering that slavery is a big theme underlying this, this letter, 
we might think that Paul would, would use this title, would use the title bondservant or slave, right? That's what we might expect, and he doesn't. Um, or, you know, we could say, like in other letters, we might expect him to appeal to his authority as an apostle. But he doesn't, and he just refers to himself as a prisoner. And what we could say about it, let me just give you my, my judgment on this. And this is just, you know, take it, take it for what it's worth. As, as, so here, here's my theory of it. As we will see in this letter... Paul does not first, so this regarding why he doesn't say apostle or use the term apostle. Paul makes it clear that he does not want to use his authority to compel Philemon to do what God ultimately wants him to do. He's going to say in his letter, I could command you, I could use my authority, but I want you to do this from your own heart and out of your own desire. So that makes sense, okay? He doesn't want to use his authority, so that maybe explains why he doesn't use the title apostle because he doesn't want the letter to be about his authority or about forcing Philemon to do anything that he doesn't want to do himself. Regarding the term prisoner, we could say this, that prisoner, in this term for prisoner, communicates a stronger level of restriction than even the term slave or bondservant. Remember I said that some slaves in the Roman world were highly educated, highly skilled, and were given a lot of relative freedoms. They could, they could travel place to place for business, move about the, their master's home pretty, you know, pretty freely. Well, a prisoner, there is no, none of that freedom. You're a prisoner, you're under lock and key, your movement is restricted, your life is completely under the control of another Therefore, what we get to Paul, we could maybe say this, that Paul is likely communicating by using this term prisoner that he is about to make, that the appeal he is about to make to Philemon concerning the treatment of Onesimus, Onesimus, Paul is going to make that appeal as a prisoner whose own life is not in his own hands. Paul himself, as he's going to appeal to Philemon, is a man who is under absolute bondage and restriction as a prisoner, and ultimately as a prisoner from, for Christ, as we see elsewhere in the New Testament. So this gives us some insight, okay, as we're building this context and, and looking at the small details of the text and why Paul, and really God through Paul, is using the language that he is using. But let's continue to our final two verses of this evening. And it reads, so he's already addressed Philemon, and now he turns and he says, and to, or greetings, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, looking at this part of the greeting, here's some observations that we can make. Well, there are three, first, there are three more recipients to this letter in addition to Philemon. So, the first is this woman named Aphia. And unfortunately, we don't know much about her um, from elsewhere in Scripture. This, 
if, if my memory is correct, this is the only time that she is referenced in the New Testament. But we know that she's considered a sister by Paul. This is a, a term of great honor and respect. And so she was obviously a very significant and influential woman in that church, and Paul wants to address her and, and acknowledge her. Then we have Archippus, and he is referred to as Paul's fellow soldier. And what's interesting about this is when you look at this title, fellow soldier, it's only used, I believe, two other times in the New Testament. And based on this title and, and information from the letter to the Colossians, we know of Archippus and likely can conclude that he is the pastor of Philemon's church. In Colossians, it references the ministry that he has been entrusted with. The term fellow soldier is, is, is used in Philippians and also in reference to Timothy when Paul talks about Timothy becoming a fellow soldier with him. So based on that, we can conclude that Archippus is actually Philemon's pastor. And then the third addressee, the third recipient of this letter, is the church in your house. And your house is most likely a reference to Philemon here. So he's addressing the dear sister Aphia, Archippus, his pastor, and then the entire church which is meeting in the house of Philemon. Now, this indicates a few things, this reference to the church being in the house of Philemon. Well, for one, it was common for this role as a church host. And this was, you remember, in, in the ancient time, churches weren't in big buildings like this. This was the very early period of, church, of the church's history. They were still outcast in society, and so they couldn't afford the big structures like we have today. And so most churches met in people's houses. And that, that was where church service was conducted. And it was very common for the church host to not be the pastor. In fact, this person was often a person of great wealth, which enabled them to have a house large enough to host the church and then also to provide food and other services to the people that would come to their church as well. And so this indicates that Philemon was a man of wealth. Another example of that is Lydia, from the book of Acts, she, she requests to Paul that she could host the church in her house. And if you remember details about her, she was a trader in purple cloth, which was the, you know, it'd be like she was an executive in Gucci or an executive in Versace, you know, like she's selling the, 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 the premium cloth of the day to all the rich people. So we can conclude that Lydia probably had some money. She, she was a wealthy woman, she was also a godly woman and requested to, to have the church hosted. And that's also probably the case with Philemon, that he was a godly and wealthy man. And by the way, the wealth is further indicated by the fact that he owns a slave, Onesimus. Slaves, to own a slave and to take care of a slave required some wealth in and of itself. But also, like I mentioned, he would have had to be a godly man. Often this role of church host was fulfilled, you could say, at the deacon level. That in order to be this host, you would have had to meet the qualifications of a deacon. So this indicates that Philemon's wealthy and that he was godly to the point that he would have qualified as a deacon. Final thing we can conclude from this is 
since Paul is addressing the entire church who meets in Philemon's house, then this letter was intended to be read and applied beyond Philemon. And I mentioned that at the beginning of tonight's message, but that is true, that this is an indicator that what God is going to communicate to Philemon was meant for the church at large. And that means that as we continue and go through this letter, there are going to be applications for Christians even today. Even if we don't, obviously we don't own slaves. So in some sense, it's not going to seem like it's relevant, but as we'll see, it is very relevant and very applicable to us today and to all Christians everywhere. So let me just summarize what we covered about the greeting of this letter and the observations we made. So first, Philemon is the first person addressed. He is the primary target of of this letter. We can say that. Second, Archippus is Philemon's pastor, but Philemon is the host of the church. Third, as the host of the church, Philemon was evidently a wealthy man, also evidenced by his, his owning a slave, and he was a godly man who would have qualified as a deacon. And then fourth, by addressing the other people besides Philemon, including Philemon's pastor and whole church, this letter was intended to be an authoritative letter for the entire church. It's God's word. So as we conclude, verse 3, of course, says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was a standard greeting of Paul. Uh, that was a standard desire of Paul that to all the people that he writes, he always wants the grace and peace of God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, we don't worship a single person who is God. We worship a God who is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Paul wants the grace and peace of our triune God to extend to all of his people. Well, next week we will continue and we will see what God, communicating through Paul, wants to say to Philemon and ultimately to us as members of God's church as a whole. So next week we will continue, but in the meantime, let us pray. Pizza is here, food is here, and we will have some fun tonight. Lord God, thank you so much for your word and just the opportunity to study your word and to study your word deeply and fully, God. Um, We pray that you would apply in these coming weeks the truth of your word to our hearts, that we would just be benefited and blessed by this study. Lord, I pray for these students as they finish out their last week or two weeks of school that that you would bless them, that you would help them finish strong. Those that are finishing out sports or starting sports for the next year, that you would keep them safe and injury-free and that, uh, and that they would be able to glorify you in everything that they do. I pray for the adults that are here, that you would bless them in their places of work and as they lead their families as well. All these things we pray according to the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the East Memorial Student Podcast. For more information and updates about East Memorial Student Ministries, please visit our website at eastmemorial.org. You can also follow us on our Instagram page titled EMBC Student.